Are you at a career crossroads and thinking about what's next for you? For career change tips, stories and resources, sign up to our newsletter at whatshedidnext.com.au. During the day, I like to call it daylighting because I don't moonlight as a pharmacist. <laughs> I daylight as a pharmacist and then at night or every other living and breathing moment of my life, I'm working on the business. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and this is a podcast where I talk to women about their inspiring career changes. Choosing between a creative passion and a more stable career is no easy decision. And for my guest today, it's taken her on quite an incredible ride. Sharmani Wirasekara always wanted to help people. So choosing a career as a pharmacist, working in hospitals, made a lot of sense. But a few years in, she started to realise she wanted something more, and she headed overseas to see what else might be out there for her. For the next three years, Sharmini worked as a tour guide in Southeast Asia, loving the travel and adventure, but seeing poverty all around her every day. Inspired by the work of local charities, an idea started brewing to combine her love of fashion which had always been there as a hobby, with empowering marginalised women here in Australia and overseas. Having recently debuted her first collection at the Brisbane Fashion Festival, Sharmani's got some great stories to share about building her new career as a fashion designer and social entrepreneur, all while juggling her day job as a pharmacist. And she has some pretty great tips for anyone who might be feeling a bit lost in their career or looking to start an ethical venture of their own. Please welcome from Brisbane, Sharmini Wirasekara. So you've had a pretty amazing year getting your label off the ground, but you didn't always work in fashion. So can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what you were doing in your early career? Yeah, so I got into pharmacy, I guess, because I've always wanted to help people. And I guess people who are from migrant backgrounds can somewhat relate, but my parents sort of migrated here about 33 years ago um, from a war-torn Sri Lanka Um, and so they never knew a stable life for the longest time and so growing up while they wanted to encourage us to do all the things that we wanted to do so I was always very artsy and loved fashion and they encouraged that from my younger years Um, as life got serious um, and through the end years of high school they sort of encouraged us all to sort of pursue stable careers and so um, and they worried that as a person of colour in Australia and um, things like that that it would be really hard for me to succeed in the arts industry Um, and so that was coming from a place of fear and not because they weren't encouraging me to do the things that you know I love to do. So you were working as a pharmacist for a few years initially and then you did decide to sort of pack it in for a while and head overseas. So what prompted that move and how did that end up becoming a bit of a turning point for you? Yeah, so um, obviously I graduated pharmacy and I got my dream job in a hospital um, and I've pretty much worked in hospital my whole career and that was always what I thought I wanted to do. Um, But, you know, I've probably... Three years in, I sort of realized that, you know, while I was helping people and it is an amazing job and I'm very grateful to have it, especially during this time, it just wasn't lighting me up and I felt really lost and confused. And, you know, I've worked for years, even in high school, we're working towards this and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm there and I just, I just didn't feel it. And 
So sort of in true eat, pray, love style, I um, I decided to quit and I went traveling. And while I went traveling, I got this amazing opportunity to work as a tour guide um, for Kentucky. And right. um, yeah, I found myself working for Kentucky for almost three years as a tour guide there. And yeah, that was a really amazing experience. And that was the first time in my life where I um, realize that saying you won't work a day in your life if you love what you do. Um, oh, yes. And that was that thing that really, truly lit me up, I guess, at that time. Um, but eventually I found myself at a crossroads where, you know, there was pharmacy, which was a really stable, still amazing job, but it didn't really light me up as much. And then I had this other job where I was traveling and meeting people. And while I was meeting people, I was also, you know, meeting locals and helping kids to Um, funding people's education and, you know, meeting people um, from villages and things like that. And it just, it wasn't a sustainable lifestyle though. So I had these two very different jobs, but neither of them were particularly right for me. So it was actually really challenging because I then found myself lost again, you know, with another dream job, but it just wasn't right for me. And so what happened next? So you'd been overseas for a while, you'd started to see poverty maybe for the first time firsthand like what were some of those experiences that had an impact on you yeah so I mean growing up my parents you know struggled being migrants so um, they obviously wanted to show us and from a young age they they often showed us poverty even in Australia there's there's so many people doing it tough Um, so no matter what they always sort of tried to show us even here but they would also take us back to Sri Lanka and take us to the poor villages and you know we would go off and often um, you know donate food and supplies to people so it wasn't a foreign thing to me when I lived in Southeast Asia Um, but I was I was living and breathing that lifestyle for so long that it was an everyday thing where you'd see beggars on the street you'd see you'd see women with babies and they're struggling to you know find formula and food for their kids and So it was just sort of like, it was quite eye-opening in that regard, I guess, because I was seeing it every day. Um, And I often found myself feeling quite helpless. Like, you know, if there was people on the street that I would often see many times when I'd come through the cities that I'd go through and I'd buy them food and water, but I know that they would always be in that same position again the next day. Mm. And it's not because they're not trying. It's just that it's just tough. Um, And that was just, you know, the cards that they were dealt and I often then would visit places, uh, some charities and social enterprises while I was traveling um, and find myself drawn to places like that where they were taking people off the streets and giving them, you know, an education, giving women um, jobs and kids education or, you know, teaching them a skill and so that they could bring themselves out and their families out of poverty And I found myself like, you know, in my spare time going to see places like that and even taking my groups to places like that, which is where I found some of the connections for my label. (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to ask. I I mean, you realised that you were perhaps wanting to give back to some of these communities that you were visiting. But I was curious as to how you landed on fashion as the way to give back. Yeah. So growing up again, I was um, very artistic and I always used to design my own clothes and get them made either from my grandmother. So she was in Sri Lanka and she would often make our beautiful clothes for us and send them to us. Um, And I also have a lovely auntie here who 
will make anything for me if I ask her. So I would design my formal dress or any sort of occasions that we'd have and she would sew it for me. So I always had that growing up, you know, and I loved sort of looking at all the magazines and looking at all the runway shows. So that was always a part of me. Um, But I never, honestly, just because of our background and um, I guess my parents' struggle, it wasn't really ever an option to pursue that as a career. So it sort of just went on the back burner as something that I do as a hobby. Um, But then I went back to Asia and of course, there's so many beautiful places like tailor shops that you can get all your clothes made. And I would just get everything made there. And it was just such an amazing experience because you could literally just tell them, draw them a picture or find them a photo or, you know, and they'd have it made for you in a couple of days. And it was just such Mm. a beautiful experience. And I got to choose the fabrics and choose all the buttons and the little details. So that was really um, something that reignited that within me. So during that time when I worked for Kentucky, but then I also wanted to find a way to combine that love of sort of travel and fashion and creativity with giving back. And so I guess taking inspiration from some of the places that I've seen where, you know, they hire women and give them a skill and they make products. I was like, wow, well, you know, this is a really sustainable way to give back to people and to support wonderful causes and, you know, keep people's livelihoods going, I guess, um, Mm -hmm. and helping them to keep themselves out of poverty And what you do see from that is that, you know, they take themselves out of poverty, but they also just end up helping their communities. And it's just such a, you know, roll-on effect. And so what were the first steps you took to start the business? Like you said, so you didn't necessarily do any formal training, but you did have that skill that, you know, you'd sort of nurtured naturally, I guess, over the years. Um, I mean, it sounds like you started out working with overseas communities from early on. So yeah, for someone that did had no business background, no fashion background, <laughs> what were the first steps you took? Yeah, so I guess um, I decided to come back to Australia and work as a pharmacist again, because obviously that's a very stable job and it gave me an income to, you know, because the startup costs of starting a label are absolutely insane. Um, and I had no idea, really. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And mm-hmm. I think I think sometimes if I knew, I don't know that I would have started. But I think sometimes being naive is really good. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> I came back and I, yeah, worked as a pharmacist and did some research into the fashion industry. And I realized, you know, that there's the fashion industry is such a huge industry. It's one of the largest industries in the world. Um, and it has the power to create such amazing positive change. And yet right now it doesn't. It's quite, you know, detrimental to the people and planet. So I, I knew that I didn't want to go down that path of sort of fast fashion. And I wanted to honour the people behind the clothes and things like that. So I sort of started researching everything to do with fashion, learnt a lot And then sort of started researching into the different fibres that you can use and um, also started connecting with some of the the local social enterprises and charities that I knew in India and in Asia and sort of um, got in contact with them to see if they were able to help me. And for those who aren't familiar with your label, which is also called Sharmini, can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah. So Sharmini's a purpose-driven brand and its sole purpose, I guess, is to give back to marginalised women and communities through, I guess, a thoughtful um, value chain is what I call it. I don't want to call it a supply chain. 
um, some value chain because I feel like every single person within a business is valuable and we often don't see the people behind, especially in the clothing industry, you don't see the people behind your clothes um, and they are essentially the most important part. So everything's really thoughtfully done in that all of the suppliers that I work with, um, I'm sort of giving back to those communities. So for example, my fabrics are made through some really talented artisans in India who hand weave and hand dye all of the fabrics. So it takes months to make. It's very slow made and it's all sort of certified organic cottons and yarn. So everything is with people and planet in mind. Um, so we only source sustainable fabrics and yarns and dyes. And then I also collaborate with two beautiful nonprofits, one in Australia. So the fabrics get sent here to Australia in Melbourne. And I work with the Social Studio, which is a beautiful um, nonprofit that gives work experience and training to refugee and migrant people here in Australia, which I guess was really nice as well, coming from that background and seeing how um, how much my parents struggled to make ends meet here. Um, it's really nice to give back to an organisation that supports people like them. Mm. Um, so they produce all of the clothes for me um, and the label. And then I also work with another nonprofit that um, I found during my travels and research for the label called Sambali Trust. And they're based in Jodhpur, India, and they help to sort of create all the um, product packaging that I use. So they upcycle vintage saris, which again is a traditional piece of clothing that is, you know, um, I guess traditional for Sri Lankans and Indians and people of South Indian sort of backgrounds. Um, so yeah, they upcycle those and create little tote bags that I package all the um, items in. And I know you did pretty much have to start over four times yeah. <laughs> to get your label off the ground. Yeah, I mean, what were some of the biggest setbacks that you had to deal with along the way? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest hurdle for me was my first experience when I went to India. So as pretty much as soon as I came back to Australia, I'd planned my trip, first trip to India, which was four months. So I came back in May and I was leaving to go to India in August and made contact with a social enterprise that um, I had sort of got to know while I was traveling. And I thought to myself, like, this would be such a great opportunity because, you know, they're already sort of established and they would be able to help me create what I want to create. And they already, you know, would hire women from villages and give them a skill and things like that. And so I went and stayed at this in this rural village um, three hours outside of a city in India. So that was probably really like one of the scariest things I've ever done, but also <laughs> one of the bravest, I think. Um, I sort of decided that I would go and stay in this village and um, go in day in and day out to work with this social enterprise for I think it was like three or four weeks. Um, but what I soon realised was that, you know, while they were telling us that they were paying the women correctly and everything was sustainably sourced and things like that. It actually wasn't. And it was a really harsh lesson for me because I'd already invested time and money into buying materials and obviously flying over there and staying there for weeks. But I soon realized that it actually wasn't as ethical as, um, as they were making it out to be and the women weren't getting paid as well as they should have been. And so I had to walk away from that, which was really hard. And I had all this fabric. I had thousands of dollars worth of fabrics 
and I have nowhere to put it. But luckily I made contact with a local guide that I used to work with for Kentucky and he to this day has some of that fabric in his house um, oh. storing it for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I had people, you know, take me from that rural town to the city and yeah, I, I mean, I was so lost. I came back to Australia, very upset, obviously had lots of tears along the way um, and just did some more research and found mm. this, um, you know, just Googled, literally just Googled social yeah. enterprises. And I realized from that point onwards, like while I do see the value in social enterprise, um, especially in these countries, in sort of the poorer countries, it's probably better to work with nonprofits just because they mm. have to be a bit more, I guess, accountable and a bit more transparent with what they do. So right. I found this beautiful nonprofit that I work with, Sambali Trust, um, just through Google. And so then I found myself booking another flight to India. <laughs> um, and so I went back in November and stayed with them. And literally as soon as I arrived at their headquarters, I just knew it was like this magical place. And I just had really good, a really good vibe about it. And I think that was the other thing that I learned is just to trust your gut. Um, I think mm. my gut would have told me that first trip that something was not right, but I just wanted it so badly, wanted it so badly that I, I think I was ignoring red flags um, when I shouldn't have. And so, I mean, so you mentioned four times starting over. We don't need to go into all of them <laughs> in huge detail. But I know, I mean, obviously you were also trying to launch the label during the pandemic over the last couple of years. So how did all of that unfold for you? Yeah, you know, we got almost to the stage of creating a collection and I think we'd finished all the sampling and then COVID hit. Um, so, yeah, I found myself again like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? <laughs> Um, and so I had to move all of my production to Australia. Uh, well, I decided to move all of my production to Australia. And so I found, um, I knew I wanted to still work with nonprofits and um, a, a, an organization that sort of gave back to marginalized communities or women. And so I found one here in Brisbane. Um, and again, we got to, we had to redo everything, resample everything. And we got to the stage of almost getting to production and then one week out of production, they closed their doors. Oh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, again, found myself looking again for the fourth time um, for a new place. And that was when I found the social studio. And that was, I like to call it my forever home. They were wonderful and it, everything just worked so well. Um, mm. But it wasn't smooth sailing from there either because they were in Melbourne and there was COVID and all sorts of things that sort of delayed production as well but yeah we got uh, through it <laughs> so that was sort of a two to three year period yeah well yeah two years I launched in May of 2021 okay and so you've had some struggles <laughs> which you overcome <laughs> but you've also had some pretty big wins so recently you had the very exciting opportunity to launch your collection at the Brisbane Fashion Festival I mean, how did it feel to finally see your collection up in lights, particularly given everything that you went through to get it to oh, that point? So surreal, so surreal. And I think it not only meant a lot to me, but it means a lot to all the women that I work with. Um, it was so lovely to sh finally show them everything, you know, that we'd been working on for years um, to, to finally have that up on stage. And I've had such amazing feedback and support since. Um, launching and yeah Brisbane Fashion Festival was such a great opportunity to showcase all the wonderful work and to sort of give that spotlight on on what my label does. 
And I'm curious to know how you juggle that dual identity of being a pharmacist and fashion designer. Like I was just picturing you at Brisbane Fashion Festival, you know, having this amazing experience and then going into work the next day to the hospital. I mean, how do you manage that in your mind? Like, and was it weird, I suppose, to put yourself out there as a designer at first when, you know, people you know may have known you as a pharmacist, you yourself may have seen yourself that way. So, yeah, how have you managed that identity shift? Um. Yeah, I sometimes have to like compartmentalize, I think, because obviously I still work as a pharmacist and really enjoy that. Um, It was actually quite hard for me to put myself out there and label myself as a designer. Um, It still sometimes feels a little bit uncomfortable, but I guess I would say the first time I truly felt like a designer was when I went to that to Sambali Trust and they kept calling me a designer and I said, oh, I'm not a designer. And I said, no, you are. These are beautiful. And they just really, um, I don't know, they were just food for my soul, like everything that I needed. They like healed all my past pain from that first um, <laughs> first Aww. experience and really um, helped me to find my feet as a designer. But the juggle is, it's still a juggle. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> um, especially through COVID, just, you know, with staffing shortages through the pandemic like um I came back wanting to work part-time but I find myself often you know working full-time hours or even more like I've done 60 hour weeks at times as a pharmacist just to help with staffing shortages so I sort of during the day I like to call it daylighting because I don't moonlight as a pharmacist (laughs) a daylight as a pharmacist and then at night or every other living and breathing moment of my life I'm working on the business um, mm. And that's just what I need to do at this stage, I guess. And do you have anyone helping you? Are you a one-woman show at the moment? I have a very supportive partner and um, he will read all my Instagram posts and emails over and over again. Um, <laughs> but pretty much, it's yeah, by myself, um, just a lot of supportive friends and family. But, you know, I think I'm a bit of a perfectionist and that's also probably why I'm a pharmacist as well. <laughs> um <laughs> It's hard to let go of certain tasks and I'm sort of at the stage where I'm trying to learn to let go of certain things and Mm. maybe get some help with, you know, things like creating ads and marketing and stuff like that. But at the moment, yeah, everything. I do all the design, fabric sourcing, finding all our suppliers, all the charities that we sort of give back to, everything Mm. is um, done by me. (laughs) And what would you say has been the most useful strategy or tool that's helped you on your career change journey so far? I think um, one thing that really helped me with mindset is, especially with imposter syndrome and things like that, um, I struggle really hard. I struggled a lot at the start and I still do. Um, But I think podcasts actually have really helped me. Um, So sometimes I'm so in my head and I just, I, I find myself going down a rabbit hole of negative thoughts and something that has really helped me is listening to podcasts. Um, And so the very first podcast I listened to was actually the Lady Startup podcast. And I remember just messaging them and being like, thank you so much. Like you've helped me so much. And this is just even before I'd actually gone to India that first time, like, and I was just sort of brewing all my ideas in my head. Um, Mm. Just having someone else in my head uh, to listen to was really, really helpful and it was inspiring to hear other people's stories. Um, and then, you know, went on to do the, the Lady Startup course and that's where we met. And We did. <laughs> um, yeah, having, I guess, a support network is yeah. of, of business women has been probably the best tool I could ever ask for. 
And so what's next for you in your life and career? Yeah, so I guess um, this is just the first collection where I'm still working. I'm now working on the second collection and sort of brewing ideas for that. It's also just about um, streamlining my business, the business model. And it sounds silly because I've only just started, but um, there's certain things like I want to be ethically made and sustainable and obviously give back. But a part of sustainability is also not producing more than what you need. And so I'm sort of trying to work out what the best business model is, whether it's just made to order or, you know, you do small runs of production. Um, so I'm still sort of working through all of those things. Um, but, yeah, we're work- working on a second collection. I'm hoping to one day sort of broaden that network of nonprofits that I work with for the label. Um, we obviously also give back through each sale to certain nonprofits as well. And um, But, yeah, I'd love to work with more sort of artists and groups and um, nonprofits as, as the business grows. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've made some pretty brave leaps in your life and career. What would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? I think the bravest moment for me was definitely that first trip to India. So I knew I was, I wanted to do this and um, for some reason I just know wasn't an answer, even thinking about how scary it could be and I had no idea what I was doing. But I think it was just the purpose behind my brand that made me do it. It was just knowing that if this succeeds, it has the potential to help so many people. And, you know, through through fashion, which, you know, a lot of people love, like, you know, it's a common language. No matter where you go, everyone loves beautiful clothes. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, if you don't speak the same language, everyone appreciates beautiful clothes. And I think just the story behind the garment and the people behind the garment is what pushed me to keep going. Um, Mm. Yeah. And to, to take that leap of faith and go to India that first time. And I think a lot of us find inspiration from other women too. Who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? So I had to really think about this question um, (laughs) because, you know, um, I guess right now the people that inspire me are the women that I work with um, through the two nonprofits. Um, and also the nonprofits that we support through the label. Um, but I also wanted to sort of give examples of people that, you know, you may not really, a lot of people probably think about, you know, really A-list celebrities or, um, you know, really big names. But I've sort of put together a list of people that I follow on Instagram. I had to scroll through my Instagram oh, yes. to see <laughs> who are the people that I follow. And so I've got a little list here. Um, mm-hmm. So a a couple of them, a lot, some of them aren't in the fashion industry. Um, and the reason why I picked these people are because they are trailblazers. They just had an idea and it was different and they've, sh- you know, done something different in their industry and, and you know, been really successful. But they were just everyday people when they started. So I'm going to give you a list of people. And I think um, for anyone okay. listening, I feel like they need to go and <laughs> learn about these people and yes yeah, a lot of them are Australian so um, the first one is Claire Press um, I feel like quite a few oh, people yes. would know Claire Press but she's you know a sustainability activist um, she was the first sustainability um, editor of Vogue um, and she's the founder of Wardrobe Crisis and um, again she just 
did something different in that industry. There had never been a sustainability editor, but, you know, she she essentially created that position for herself. Um, right. Another person is a good a friend of mine. Her name's Erica Kramer. Um, again, she came from a lot of trauma, you know, and she's now an amazing confidence coach and helps, you know, women with confidence issues find themselves and speak their truth. Um, there's obviously Mia Friedman, you know, the founder of the biggest um, women's media company in Australia. There's um, Rachel Bajada. I hope I said that right. She's the founder of No Shoe, a um, no sugar sweets company that yeah, I absolutely yeah. love. Um, Ursula DeCastro, she's the founder of Fashion Revolution. There's also Denny Todorovic, who's actually a non-binary um, stylist, content creator, um, so these are all people that I follow and just love watching their journeys. And, you know, as I said, they're all everyday people, but they're just absolute trailblazers that have, you know, shaped and changed the industry for the better um, mm. just through their, you know, purpose and their drive. So they sort of inspired me to keep going. <laughs> mm, brilliant. Well, we can add all of those to our show notes. So if people <laughs> check them out, they can yeah. follow them. Um, and if you could recommend one thing to watch, read or listen to for any aspiring career changes out there, what would you recommend? Okay, so the two books that I'd recommend is Chapter One by Daniel Flynn, the founder of Thank You, the, uh, Thank You, the brand. Uh, yeah, okay. There's Shoe Dog, which is by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. Um, right. I, I find myself really drawn to things like those sort of books and podcasts like your beautiful podcast, the um, the Lady Startup podcast, Lady Brains, they're all great for people who are in my, like who are similar to me where you wanted to start a business but all you, uh, sometimes all we see is all the success stories but we don't actually see the struggle behind the business and how it started and, you know, the early days where it was all touch and go and all of these these books and podcasts help you to realize that everyone starts somewhere and if you could offer one tip to someone listening who's really feeling in need of a change but maybe they don't know if they're making the right decision or you know maybe they're not even sure what else is out there for them what's your best tip for them so I can fully relate to someone who feels lost and not sure what they want to do but has this burning desire within them to do something because um, I had that and I had that for a very long time. So my best advice would be to follow your curiosity. And I stole that from Elizabeth Gilbert, who actually, she's the writer of Eat, Pray, Love. Um, but she has a TED Talk and also I think it's a, a podcast as well through um, Oprah's Super Soul Conversations, which oh, I think yes. I sent to you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, she has a really amazing talk. And basically, if, if you're lost and you don't, you have this burning desire to do something, but you're not sure what it is. She now says to follow your curiosity because for the longest time she was telling people to to follow their passion. And so I got told that a lot. Follow your passion. What are you passionate about? And I, I genuinely didn't know. And it seems obvious now I'm passionate about travel and fashion and helping people, but sometimes you just don't know to put those all, all of those three things together. So you may not know what it is that you want to do, but just Follow whatever lights you up at that time. And it, it doesn't have to be anything big. It could be that you just want to go ice skating. You feel like going ice skating. <laughs> so go ice skating. Do that. And then maybe when you're ice skating, you'll be in this zen state where some you'll get some inspiration. And I don't know that this is what I'm going to be doing forever, but this is what 
you know, my path has led me to, I guess, um, and by me following my curiosity of doing pharmacy, doing um, tour guiding, and then also wanting to help people, it just sort of brought me to where I am now. So I'm just following that. It's just following a curiosity. And then eventually you might just find yourself where you're meant to be. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Shimani. <laughs> I really love chatting with you today. And I'm so glad we finally got to share your story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been so nice to be here. That was Shamani Weerasekara, founder of the fashion label Shamani, which you can find at shamani.com.au. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd love if you could share the link with a friend or leave us a kind review. And if you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn at What She Did Next Podcast or subscribe to our newsletter at whatshedidnext.com.au. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Our associate producer is Catherine Cavill. And this podcast is made on Darawal Country. Thanks for listening.